بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم إن الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا ومن سيئات أعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلله فلا هادي له وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له وأشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله صلى الله عليه وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم تسليما كثيرا أما بعد مجيب بدر السيسر السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته so tonight's halaqa is on Imam al-Shafi rahimahullah. And in each of the Imams that we've spoken about, we want to highlight a particular aspect of their lives. And the aspect of his life that we want to highlight is something very unique but very relevant to our current situation in Calgary. And that is how to differ with people. And Imam al-Shafi rahimahullah, literally when you look at you know, his work, al-Risala, when you look at his book of fiqh, al-Um, you'll see that he differed with a lot of people. But he did it in such an amazing way that people were not able to tell that he was differing with them. No one ever left offended, no one ever left hurt, no one got upset. But you'll notice at times though, it was this very fact that got Imam al-Shafi rahimahullah into trouble as well. But that's something we'll get into later on in the night ta'ala. So Imam al-Shafi rahimahullah, he was born in the year 150 and he died in the year 204. So how old was he when he died? 54 years old, very, very young, very, very young compared to the rest of the Imams. His name was Muhammad ibn Idris ibn Abbas ibn Uthman ibn Shafi ibn Ubaid ibn Abi Yazid ibn Abdul Muttalib ibn Hashim ibn Abdul Munaf, meaning that he came from the same lineage as the Prophet. So he was a Qurashi by origin. He was a Qurashi by origin. And in fact, he was born in Gaza in Palestine. And his family used to live in the Yemeni quadrant of Gaza, and his mother was of Yemeni heritage. Now, Imam al-Shafi's father, he passed away when he was very, very young, so he was raised as an orphan child. And Imam al-Shafi's mother was very, very afraid that Imam al-Shafi, rahimahullah, would not grow up knowing his, uh, you know, prophetic lineage. So that is why at the age of two, she decided to move back to Mecca. She decided to move back to Mecca. Now Imam Shafi rahimahullah's family grew up very, very poor. They didn't have much money and it was a, a struggle. In fact, you'll notice that in the early phases of Imam Shafi rahimahullah studying, it was his teachers that are spending on him. It was his teachers that are spending on him. Now this would eventually have a great impact on Imam Shafi. Like the fact that he used to receive when he was a young man and was encouraged to study, Imam Shafi rahimahullah went bankrupt three times in his life. He went bankrupt three times in his life. And when he was asked, you know, why did you go bankrupt? He said, I did not see it befitting that when I was a young student learning, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent someone to provide for me. And here I have many students, a lot of them cannot provide for themselves. Then how is it befitting that Allah has given me money and I do not spend on them? And he used to say that it is only befitting that is like a, a life that is truly worthy of living is a life that is spent in the help of people. A life that is truly worth living is a life that is spent in helping people. Imam al-Shafi rahimahullah, like his predecessors, he was an ayah from the ayat of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, a sign from the miracles of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He memorized the Quran by the age of seven. He memorized the muwatta by the age of 10. And his first teacher, Muslim ibn Khalid al-Zanji, he allowed him to give fatwa by the time he was 15. And this was the, the young man. In fact, when you look at the story of why Imam al-Shafi rahimahullah 
started memorizing the Muatta. At the age of 10, he had already heard of this legendary man in Medina by the name of Imam Malik. And he had the ambition that when he goes to Medina, he wants to be prepared to study with him. So he started memorizing the Muatta from that time. There's another incident that reports that Imam Malik, when he memorized the Muatta, he was actually already on his journey from Mecca to Medina. And that journey took him nine days. So he memorized it in that time as he was riding the camel. And these sort of things are profound. How amazing was his memory? That he would have to block the other page of the book to make sure he wouldn't get confused. So he was able to read something once and he'd have to cover the other side just so that he wouldn't get confused. His mind would not memorize both things at the same time. Now Imam Malik rahimahullah, he saw this in Imam al-Shafi. And when Imam al-Shafi rahimahullah arrived into Medina, there's a difference of opinion when he arrived. He was 13 years old, he was 18 years old, he was 15 years old. Multiple opinions. But regardless, he was still very, very young, 18 or younger. And he had come with a letter from the governor of Mecca, introducing Imam al-Shafi, saying that this is you know, the brightest and best of Mecca, and I'm sending him to you, so please take good care of him. So Imam Malik, rahimahullah, he reads this letter and he asks Imam al-Shafi, you know, read to me from what you know. And what does he start reading from? He starts reading from the Muatta. You know, that's like, you know, if you want to get off on the right foot, you read from the authors of the books, you know, book. So he starts reading to, uh, to him from the Muatta. And he was hoping that Imam Malik would stop and give commentary. But Imam Malik, rahimahullah, he fell in love with that Imam al-Shafi, rahimahullah, used to recite. And the very first recital that he had of Muatta, Imam Malik actually didn't comment much at all. He just used to tell him, continue reading, continue reading, continue reading. And he says, a couple of days went by, and I had already finished reading to him the Muatta. And at that time, you know, I'm like, hey, you know, I'm supposed to be here to learn, not just uh, to, to recite it to you. And Imam Malik said, inshallah, you know, in, in the next round, we can, we can go through it again. Now, Imam Shafi, rahimahullah, he too had a student. And, and you'll notice that there's going to be like a lot of back and forth. I'm not sure if those of you that watch TV shows, there's like this new trend in TV shows that they'll have like a present day and then like something from the past and then they'll like jump to the future. Imam al-Shafi's like biography is sort of going to be like that because there's so much repetition. There's so much repetition that happens. Now this incident of reciting back and forth, it happens another time in Imam al-Shafi's life. And that is when Imam al-Shafi rahimahullah wrote the Risala. As we were studying yesterday, Imam al-Shafi he received a letter saying, look, the people have gotten confused. They don't have the correct approach to deriving law anymore. Can you please write for us a manual? So in response to that, he wrote a risala A risala means the letter, right? So it was a response to a letter that he received. Now Imam al-Shafi he went through this twice. Once in, uh, in, in, um, when he was in Iraq and a second time when he was in Egypt. When he was in Egypt, he had a student by the name of Rabia bin Suleiman. And Rabia bin Suleiman, he did the exact same thing with the Risala that Imam Shafi did the, with the Muatta. And he says that I read the Risala to Imam Shafi 30 times. And each time I would read it to him, he would correct something in it. By the time we got to the 30th time, I said to him, you know, are there still mistakes? Are there still things that, that need to be fixed? And at that time, Imam al-Shafi, he realized and he said 
that perfection is only for the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Perfection is only for the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that time he stopped revising the Risala. And that was the final you know, update that was done to it at that time. So this incident was repeated. And you'll see again, a lot of times in Imam Shafi's life, this goes uh, happens quite a few times. It happens quite a few times. What was Imam Shafi's rahimahullah's childhood like? You know, what did he grow up? liking and enjoying. This is not something we discussed in the lives of the previous Imams because those details weren't really known to us. But you notice that in the life of Imam Shafi even though there aren't many sources to his biography, the individuals that did write his biography wrote it in extreme detail and, and, and very thoroughly. So from them were Ar-Razi and from them was Al-Bayhaqi. In fact, Al-Bayhaqi, you know, uh, the Manaqib of Imam Shafi is a very, very thick book. So he says, when Imam Shafi was very, very young, he naturally fell in love with archery. And he used to spend so much time doing archery that he would get uh, sunburnt on his back. He would get sunburnt, sunburnt on his back, and his mother would say, you know, how long are you going to spend outside that you know, you're even harming your back? So that's how long he would spend with archery. Now this was obviously a prophetic sunnah, as a lot of us know. But here's something to think about. The Prophet ﷺ encouraged us to teach our children three things. In fact, there's a difference of opinion if it was a hadith or a statement of Umar ibn Khattab, but it was encouraged regardless to do these three things. Archery, swimming, and horseback riding. With archery, why do you think archery was recommended? What do you learn from archery? What is specific to archery? Patience. Patience. Concentration. Concentration. Aim. Focus. Precision. A lot of these things. But what, what I took away from it, you know, I've tried it three times now, um, is that it requires a lot of practice. You know, it looks very easy. Like you see it in cartoons, the guy just pulls the arrow and it goes straight forward. A lot of times it goes backwards as well. <laughs> You're not doing it properly. And you end up hurting your arm, believe it or not. Like the way the, the string goes, it actually ends up hitting your arm. And you'd be surprised that even if you're standing like 10 meters away, you will still be off by like 10 meters in your trajectory. So it's a, a very difficult sport. So you, number one, you learn the importance of practice and repetition and practice making perfect. Number two, you learn the importance of having a direct target, having a goal of something that you're aiming towards. And then number three, it is a, you know, something that requires the utmost concentration. Now, particularly back in the day, they used to use it for hunting. So as an animal is moving, you need to be able to hit that animal with your bow and arrow. So it requires the utmost level of concentration. Now it was things like this that actually helped Imam al-Shafi as he grew older. Because he had already developed the habit of practice. He had already developed the habit of concentration. Even though there's craziness going on, he's still able to focus. So a lot of these things helped Imam al-Shafi growing up. Now, as Imam al-Shafi is growing older, and his time in Medina, he's spent a, a prolonged period of time. Some scholars mentioned 13 years, some scholars mentioned that he was there till Imam uh, Malik rahimahullah, passed away. So you're looking at maybe from 10 to 18 years that Imam al-Shafi was in Medina. But while Imam Malik is there, again, he's very, very poor. And during the last years of Malik, as Malik has secluded himself, as we studied last week, Imam al-Shafi, he became very poor again. He didn't have money. So what he decides to do is he starts applying for jobs. You know, who's going to hire Imam al-Shafi? And every time, you know, Imam al-Shafi would go and apply for a job, 
It's like you have a PhD and you're applying at a job at like a convenience store. They're going to be like, sorry, you're overqualified. We can't give you this job. So I remember Shafir, he kept getting turned down. He couldn't you know, find good, appropriate work for himself. Up and until there was a governor from Yemen that came to Medina. A governor from Yemen came to Medina. And he was looking for a personal assistant at that time. And when he heard that Imam Shafi was you know, looking for work, he knew that you know, he wanted to hire Imam Shafi Now, what was interesting about this governor of Yemen, he was an extremely corrupt governor. Extremely corrupt. If you wanted to meet him, you would have to pay a bribe to him. And his previous you know, uh, assistant recognized this. So as people were coming to give a bribe to the governor, the assistant is taking a cut off the top. He said, like, give me the bribe, I'll give it to the governor, and I'll get you your appointment that you need to see him. And that is what got the previous assistant fired. So now, as Imam Shafi is coming into this position, the governor is keeping a very, very close eye on him. Is Imam Shafi going to be a truthful and honest man? Or what is he going to be like? So now this governor, to give you perspective, Imam Shafi ends up leaving uh, Medina, and he ends up moving to an area called Najran. Najran was a part of Yemen at that time. It was a part of Yemen at that time. Now it's a part of Saudi Arabia. So when Imam Shafi moves to Najran, the governor himself is trying to entrap Imam Shafi. He's like trying to send people who are trying to bribe Imam Shafi to see if Imam Shafi will take it. And this is like a regular occurrence. But Imam Shafi was an honest and trustworthy man. He would you know, never give in to those temptations and he always you know, was, led a, a life of honesty. Now, where this created a problem was you can imagine an honest and trustworthy man that is coming into a job where he could easily be corrupt, what's going to happen? He's going to start changing the system. And the other people that are involved in this corruption, other assistants that were there, other employees that were there, they're losing money now because Imam Shafi, not only is he not accepting the bribes, but he's becoming very, very vocal against accepting bribes and how leadership needs to be honest and needs to have integrity. So now that Imam Shafi rahimahullah is you know, preventing people from getting their, their bribes, these people are getting very, very upset. How do we get rid of Imam Shafi? We fabricate a lie against him. So at that time, there was a, you know, when we slightly discussed this during the time of Imam Malik, but there was opposition to the Abbasid uh, Caliphate at that time. They're from the descendants of Ali radiallahu anh. So Harun al-Rashid, is sent a letter by an anonymous source, an unknown source, saying that there are nine people from Najran, as well as the assistant of the governor, who are planning to overthrow the Khilafah from Najran. The Khilafah is in Iraq and Najran is in, in Yemen. <laughs> so, you know, these ten people, they're going to come and overthrow the Khilafah. One of the most absurd things you'll ever hear in your life. But nonetheless, the Khalifa has to take this very, very seriously. So he tells you know, he sends a letter back saying, I want these nine people as well as Imam Shafi to be brought forth to, uh, to uh, Iraq. Brought forth to Iraq. So now, as Imam Shafi rahimahullah is brought to Baghdad, this is now in the year 184. It's in the year 184. And Harun al-Rashid is the Khalifa. He introduces himself and he says, look, I am not like these other people. I'm just a, a man that is, has a little bit of knowledge and wants to do khayr. I have a little bit of knowledge and I want to do khayr. And this is how he introduces himself. 
And the Khalifa asks him, but what is your name? He says, my name is Muhammad ibn Idris. And then someone from the back, he shouts out, shouts out Al-Shafi'i. And he says, yes, Al-Shafi'i. Who is the individual that shouts out from the back? It is the student of Imam Abu Hanifa, Muhammad ibn Hassan, who is the judge of Harun al-Rashid. So Muhammad ibn Hassan, he's like shocked. He's like, Muhammad ibn Idris is here, you know, in, in, in Baghdad. You know, what a privilege and honor, but it's such an unfortunate circumstance. So, you know, Muhammad ibn Hassan, he tells the Khalifa, you know, Ya Amir al-Mu'mineen, this has to be a mistake. There's no way that Muhammad ibn Idris, a man who is known for his knowledge, renowned for his piety, known for his, you know, righteousness, is going to, you know, cause such upheaval and uproar. Let him be, leave him in my trust while you look further into his affair. So Muhammad ibn Hassan actually got him off the hook. He says, I will take care of him and I will be his guarantor till he look into his affair. And Imam al-Shafi rahimahullah, he says that that ended up being one of the biggest blessings in disguise. Because Muhammad ibn Hassan, he ended up taking care of me and while the Khalifa looked into my affair, two years went by. Two years went by. And that is when I got exposed to the school of Ra'i. And this is what we were speaking about yesterday, the difference between Ahl al-Hadith and Ahl al-Ra'i. This is how Imam al-Shafi got exposed to it. So he kept on learning, kept on learning, kept on learning. But again, what's going to happen? It's like, you know, the teacher's pet in the classroom. When you have a teacher's pet, all the other students are going to get upset. But what's happening over here is that as Muhammad ibn Hassan is showing favoritism to Imam al-Shafi, not only are the other students getting upset because he's the teacher's pet, but Imam al-Shafi is openly opposing you know, Muhammad ibn Hassan. He's telling him, but yes, in Hijaz we have this hadith, in Hijaz we have that hadith, in Hijaz we understood, we understood the ayah this way. So he's refuting him, and it's not a traditional sense of, of scholarship where you know, you're just accepting what your teacher is saying. But Imam al-Shafi is openly responding back and you know, uh, telling them what he had learned in Hijaz, telling them what he had learned in Hijaz. So at the end of the two years, Imam al-Shafi pretty much gets kicked out of Baghdad. His case is cleared, but the students of Muhammad ibn Hassan, they're getting very, very upset. They're like, who does this young kid think he is? He's ruining our classes. You know, he's speaking, he's not respecting our teacher, though he should be respected. Muhammad ibn Idris, we're sorry, but you need to leave. So he ends up getting exiled. Where does he end up going? He ends up going to Mecca now. As he gets exiled from Mecca, sorry, as he gets exiled from Baghdad, he ends up in Mecca. And this is like another miracle from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Why? Because as he's teaching in Mecca, there's word going around that this amazing linguist, this amazing mufassir, this amazing muhaddith, and this usuli is now teaching. So one of the first people to hear about him is Imam Ahmad rahimahullah. And Imam Ahmad, he has a difficult decision to make. I can either learn from a Zuhri, I believe if it is, yes, I'm pretty sure it was Ibn Shahab Zuhri. I can either learn from a Zuhri or I can learn from a Shafi'i. He makes the decision one day, he's like, you know, I've spent quite a bit of time with a Zuhri. Let me go and study with a Shafi'i. And he goes and he spends time with Imam Shafi'i for the very first time. And he is absolutely amazed that this man is amazing. The way he understood Usul, the way he understood the Quran, completely out of this world. The next day, he goes up to one of his friends. And this is like, you know, I don't even know how to explain the story. His friend was Ishaq ibn Rahawi. Ishaq ibn Rahawi was another great Imam from Khurasan. We spoke about Al-Layth ibn Sa'ad, I think it was last week. 
Yeah, when the story of Imam Malik, we spoke about Layth ibn Sa'd. How Layth ibn Sa'd was another great Imam who could have had his own madhab, that much potential. Ishaq ibn Rahawai, the exact same thing. In fact, they considered him superior to Ahmad and superior to you know, other scholars of hadith, even the likes of Bukhari. He was from the teachers of Al-Bukhari. Not only in hadith, but in fiqh as well. They considered him superior. He comes to Ishaq and he tells him, look, let's leave the halaqah of Al-Zuhri and I'm going to take you to a halaqah, the likes that you've never seen of before. Now, Imam al-Shafi coming from Iraq, as we mentioned, he's not changed completely, but he's speaking of a lot of philosophical matters that the people of Hijaz are not accustomed to. So Ishaq, he loved Ahmed very much, and he says, you know what, for your sake, let's go and check this guy out. He comes to the halaqah of Imam al-Shafi, and he sees this young kid, and he's like, who is this young kid? You know, why is he teaching? Who gave him the right to teach? And this is, you know, what's going on. The halaqa finally finishes, and Ishaq, he challenges Imam al-Shafi rahimahullah to a debate. He says, I want to debate you on the following matter. And it actually doesn't mention what the matter is. And Imam Ahmad rahimahullah is thinking, man, why, you know, do you always have that friend that's looking for trouble? Why did I bring this friend that's causing trouble? <laughs> so now, Ishaq and Imam al-Shafi rahimahullah are debating. And again, I wish I could explain it to you in, in, in like common day terms. But think of like your two favorite speakers. You know, I'll give you the equivalent of, imagine of like Noman Ali Khan's debating Mufti Mink. Right, who wouldn't want to attend that? This is like the equivalent of it, but like 50,000 times higher. Right, these are like the original sources of Islam. So that's what's going on. And Imam al-Shafi rahimahullah, Again, he's very strong in his logic, very well versed in the Quran and the Sunnah, and now very well versed in the, I guess, you know, Muslim philosophy, if you want to call it that. Ishaq, he's very well, well versed in fiqh, and he's very well versed in hadith. So now as they're having this debate, Imam Shafi rahimahullah is saying, the Prophet wasallam said, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, and Ishaq ibn Rahawai, he's quoting all the different scholars of hadith. And in Muhammad ibn Dadris, he says, you know, I'm quoting Allah and His Messenger وسلم, to you, and you're, you're you know, narrating from our companions. How is this fair? And this God is very, very upset because he didn't have a response to this. This is all that he had learnt. So now Ishaq, he did something that he shouldn't have at that time. He turns around to the people and he says in his native language, he was from Khorasan, so I'm assuming he spoke some sort of Pharisee or something equivalent to that. And he tells his companions, guess who has won the, the, the debate? Like basically saying that, I'm about to uh, annihilate him now. And as soon as he said that, what do you think ended up happening? He loses the debate, right? As soon as it becomes an egotistical matter, Ishaq couldn't continue the debate anymore. He says, my mind completely shut off, nothing was coming out of my mouth, and I ended up leaving in shame. And that night, I regretted how I had treated Imam al-Shafi. Now, Imam al-Shafi, rahimahullah, even though he didn't speak his language, he sort of understood what was being said. He sort of understood what was being said. But Imam al-Shafi, rahimahullah, did not bat an eyelid and let it pass. He did not bat an eyelid and let it pass. But this was a very eye-opening experience for Imam al-Shafi because he's learning that as a young man, even though you may have a lot of knowledge, even though you may come from the family of the Prophet, you will be challenged. People will not accept your authority. People will not accept you for who you are. 
And Imam Shafi rahimahullah took that as a very valuable lesson. He took that as a very valuable lesson. Now, I want to get into that part of his story where we're talking about the thing we want to highlight from Imam Shafi rahimahullah is his ability to differ with other people. And we mentioned that famous story that he had with uh, Abu Yunus uh, Suddi where he defeated him in a debate and a Suddi, he leaves very, very upset. And he comes back to a Suddi and he says, holding him by the hand, that even though we differ, can we still not be brothers, right? And this is like the framework that we want to establish. That in our community, when we have difference of opinions, why does it mean we have to break bonds of brotherhood? Why does it have to be that way? Why is it that we are not tolerant of other people's opinions? And Imam Shafi, rahimahullah, he has many, many quotes that deal with difference of opinion. One of the first of them I want to share with you, he says, human reason is just like eyesight, and it has limits that it cannot surpass. Human reason is just like eyesight, and it has limits that it cannot surpass. Your eyesight will only go so far, and as human beings, it's very important to understand that our intellect will have similar limits. So sometimes there will be people who understand things differently than you. There will be people who understand things better than you. And this should not cause animosity and hatred between people. But as soon as you understand that each and every one of us has our limits, we should appreciate when other people give us a perspective. You know, back in the day, if someone gave you perspective, they used to give him a camel as a gift. Right? This is something I, I heard today that if someone gives you advice, they, they used to give a camel as a gift. So I actually looked into this. And it wasn't just about advice, but it was about perspective. If someone could broaden your horizons, right? you gave them a, a camel as a gift. So we should be open to the idea of people having different opinions and people approaching us with those opinions. And it's not our, always our way or the highway. Now how did Imam al-Shafi develop this humility? He developed this humility in understanding that one of the worst characteristics a person can have is showing off his knowledge. One of the worst characteristics anyone can have is showing off their knowledge. And that is why multiple times Imam al-Shafi rahimahullah, he would say that when I debate with someone, it is always for the sake of the truth. And I pray to Allah, listen to these words, I pray to Allah that Allah be in the aid of my opponent that he loosens the knots from his tongue, and that he prevails the truth through him. Right? Look at these three things. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala aids my opponent, is with my opponent. He loosens the knots from his tongue, and he prevails the truth through him. Which individual would approach a debate and discussion like that? Like, think about this for a second. Imagine you're in a debate with someone, and you're literally making dua that, Oh Allah, aid this man. Loosen the knots from his tongue, and prevail the truth through him. This is something that gets lost. When we have debates, when we have discussions, it's about me against you, you against someone else. And it's never for the sake of the truth. And I think that's what often gets lost. We've lost our desire for attaining the truth. And shaitan has deceived us to making all of our decisions and all of our discussions and all of our debates very egotistical. We always want to prevail. But Imam al-Shafi is teaching us another perspective that there's something greater than us, and that is the truth, and that is what human beings should be striving for. Human beings should be striving for. And I'll read something uh, from the etiquettes of debate from Imam al-Shafi rahimullah. Al-Shafi said, I never debated with anyone with the intention to triumph over them, but only on account of what I saw to be the truth. He said, I've only ever debated with someone with the sincere purpose of advising them. Likewise, he said, I have never hoped 
while debating with someone that they would make a mistake. So look at the, the sincerity and the integrity that Imam Shafi rahimahullah is coming with. That it's never about himself, it's always about the truth. It's always about the truth. And one last thing I'll share with you over here. This eventually got adopted as Hanafi Usul al-Fiqh. And this became very, very famous in Hanafi Usul al-Fiqh. That we were talking yesterday is that the Hanafis have a different approach to Usul al-Fiqh as opposed to the uh, Mutakallimeen or the rest of the Madahib. Now one of their fundamental principles in understanding epistemology and understanding truth is this principle. I regard my opinion to be correct while entertaining the possibility that I am wrong. I regard the other person's opinion to be mistaken while entertaining the possibility that it is right. Meaning that you're not, you know, your opinion is not engraved in stone. There's always flexibility that you approach a discussion that you are right with the possibility of you being wrong. And your opponent being wrong with the possibility of them being right. With the possibility of them being right. Now, what I want to tie into our current day situation in Calgary, that when you look at the situation in Calgary, things are, are obviously in a, in a very bad situation. We have multiple lawsuits going on. Uh, you know, there, there's a, a complete misunderstanding as to why uh, a musallah was shut down for Jummah. You know, today we had a Jummah prayer that was prayed outside of a, of a courthouse. And, you know, just crazy things are, are happening in this community. Now, when I look at how are these issues resolved, I think a lot of these issues could be resolved by Imam Shafi's approach. And obviously, everyone has to hold themselves accountable for. And this is what I think people make a mistake in, that we're so busy trying to hold other people to account, we don't want to hold ourselves accountable. We're so busy trying to fix other people, we don't want to fix ourselves. So when you look at the approach that Imam Shafi took, understanding that there's something greater than ourselves, and that is the truth. And understanding that we can have difference of opinions, but we're still brothers and sisters at the end of the day. That this individual, I don't want him to make a mistake. I don't want him to you know, be upon falsehood. But rather, I want the truth to prevail, even if it's from him. And this sort of mentality, I think it needs to be brought back. Like particularly, you know, one of the things I was really, really afraid of today was in the khutbah, I highlighted that as Muslims, we've been receiving a lot of positive coverage. For once, you know, things are actually looking in our favor. Things are looking very, very good. I was mentioning, if you watch The Daily Show, this whole week, every single night, Trevor Noah is saying something positive about Muslims and supporting Muslims. You know, even for those of you that watch TSN, it's the sports network. It has nothing to do with the news. Even last night, they were covering a story about how an individual, she was a, a young girl, I can't remember her. It was Fatima something, I can't remember exactly. She's from Abu Dhabi. She plays on the Abu Dhabi ice hockey team. Of all things in Abu Dhabi, you're playing ice hockey, but that's their prerogative. You know, she had an ambition to come and watch hockey in North America. She loved, you know, the NHL. So they have this story of her struggles of playing hockey in, in the desert and how it was completely taboo and the this, strives this that she's taken. But she never sacrificed her hijab. She stuck by her principles. And then last night, um, I, don't, I don't know hockey very well, but I know that she was in Washington or she was at a game where Washington was playing with another team. And they asked her to actually drop the puck. So she drops the puck, and after she drops the puck, she takes a, a selfie with a, um, what's his name, Alexander Ovechkin? 
Avechkin, and I can't remember who the other team was, but the other guy was a famous guy as well. But this is like, you know, that was like said straight center news on TSN. And I'm, I'm watching this and I'm like, what is going on? This is like literally the twilight zone. Because the week before, it's like, you know, Muslims are terrorists. They're going to blow up your country. Be aware of them. And now it's like, you know, we stand in solidarity with the Muslim community. They have their struggles. We feel bad for what happened in Quebec. And it's completely different rhetoric. And then today before Juma, I had this fear. I'm like, man, everything's going so positive. We're going to shoot ourselves in the foot. We're going to do something to ruin this. <laughs> and then this whole, like, praying Jummah in front of the courthouse. And I was like, Ya Allah, just protect this Ummah. And I'm glad that as of yet, I haven't seen any news coverage about it. No one's reported it. But this is a problem in the community that, like I said, everyone has to hold themselves accountable for. And one of the problems we have is that there's no communication amongst us. No one has confidence in leadership. Like, I'm just approaching this from a purely fiqh perspective. The general ruling in fiqh is that Jummah is meant to be prayed in the masajid. You are meant to pray Jummah in a masjid. The exception to the rule is, if there are isolated places where there are too many people, then you can get an external space because that many people cannot be accommodated to the masjid. That is the, the, the exception to the rule where there's so many people, you get another space. But, us, but for us to randomly pop up places where we start praying Jummah, I'm like, hey, you know, I feel lazy today. Come pray Jummah at my house. You know, I invite my friends over. It doesn't work like that. If I want to pray Jummah in front of the courthouse, it doesn't work like that, right? The, our religion is based upon principles and guidance. And that is why in every avenue of our lives, we need religious guidance. So this is not to, to, to criticize that the brothers had bad intentions or anything like that. But from a religious perspective, we need to make sure our, the actions that we're doing, are they actually valid or not? Number two is the way we approach matters. Drop the egos. It should never be about us. And it should always be about the community. It should always be about the community. And this is where I want to read something to you about Imam, from Imam Shafi rahimullah. And I want you guys over here to tell me what Imam Shafi rahimullah is doing over here. Okay? So Imam Shafi rahimullah, he says in our risala since the community is dispersed through different lands, no one will be able to cling to a physical community which consists of bodies which are separated. Furthermore, these physical bodies compromise both Muslims and non-Muslims, God-fearing and impious. Community forms a cohesive single unity in forbidding certain things and considering other things lawful and acting accordingly. Those who say what the community of Muslims say, says clinging to their community, Whoever opposes what the community of Muslims says has diverged from the community to which he must hold. There is heedless separation. The community cannot be heedless of the meaning of the book, sunnah, or analogy. You clearly have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> Don't worry. This is a very uh, difficult paragraph. The I did not realize how many times he said community in this passage. But do you guys have a clue what he's talking about? Okay, but what's he talking about? That the community is dispersed through different lands and no one will be able to cling to a physical community. No, like nationalism and all that. And who is that relevant to? Different opinions. But he's referring to something very specific. Like he's refuting someone here and you're not even going to understand who he's refuting. That's what I'm trying to point out. Who's he refuting? Who is really big on one certain community? That everything is based on this community. Uh -huh. Imam Malik rahimahullah. Amadu Ahl al-Madina. That Imam Malik's understanding of Ijma' was only about the people of Medina. And Imam Shafi, rahimahullah, he's refuting him here in the Risala 
But up until a person, you know, deeply understands what Imam Shafi'i is saying, he won't even understand that he's refuting him. It's like Imam Shafi'i just talking about a, a topic, right? That's how we'll understand it. But Imam Shafi'i is making very valid points over here. That our understanding of community is not the IISC. It is not the MCC. It is not MAC. These are not communities. The Calgary Muslim community is a community which is part of the Canadian Muslim community, which is a part of the global Ummah. So the actions that we take, as Imam Shafi'i is saying, that what is binding upon us is that our enjoining of good and forbidding of evil. And when you understand that all of us are part of a greater community, we cannot leverage or give preference to one organization over another. I cannot give preference of myself over you. Community always has to come first. Community always has to come first. So this is just uh, a little tangent that I want to go on. When you look at the ethics of debate that Imam Shafi'i had, I thought it would be very relevant to, to discuss this in our, in our current light. Now, Imam Shafi'i actually there's a lot of other things that I want to share with you. I'm going to go through them very quickly just because they're very valuable. Ashafi's son, so Imam Ashafi, his kunya was Abu Abdullah. He had a son named Abdullah and he had other children as well. But he said, I never once heard my father raise his voice in a debate. And he asked him, you know, how is that possible? Why is that? This is because shouting is the first sign that one is losing an argument. So as soon as people start raising their voices, know that is the first sign that they have lost the argument. And that is why Imam Ashafi, he always kept himself very composed. When you keep yourself composed, you don't think emotionally, then you'll be able to orate and articulate what you have to say properly and make sure that you're doing justice to it. You know, um, I can't remember who made this statement. It was a, a Chinese philosopher. I want to say it was from Art of War, but I don't think it was. He was talking about why people start shouting at each other even though they're standing so close, right? When people are, are, are angry, they'll start shouting at one another. They're not shouting at one another because the other person is having difficulty hearing. Why do they actually start shouting at each other? That's exactly it. He says that even though physically they're close together, their hearts have become distant. And the mind starts to think that if I raise my voice loud enough, it'll bring the hearts back together again. It'll bring the hearts back together again. Imam Shafi, he's orating this in a different fashion. Ashafi was once walking in the marketplace with his students when they overheard a man ridiculing one of the scholars. Ashafi turned to his students and said, Safeguard your ears from hearing indecent language as much as you safeguard your tongue from uttering it. The one who listens is the partner of the one who speaks. The fool looks at the worst thing on his plate and wishes to see it on your plates as well. When you reject the speech of a fool, you are blessed in rejecting it as much as the fool is cursed for uttering it. This story within of itself has many, many lessons. Starting off, when you think of the relationship between a teacher and a student, you would think it's refined to the masjid, refined to the classroom. But it's not. Imam Shafi'i is showing that true mentorship, true student and teacher tutelage, it takes place in all aspects of life. So he's walking through his student, he's walking with his students through the marketplace. And I can only imagine what Imam Shafi'i is talking about. 
You can imagine Imam Shafi teaching his students the dua of the marketplace. You can imagine Imam Shafi telling his students that the most blessed of places are the masajid and the most cursed of places are the marketplaces. And these are the sort of discussions. But this interesting part is that he understands that you're not always going to be able to protect your students. They're going to be exposed to things you don't want them to get exposed to. So when this scholar is being bad-mouthed, Imam Shafi could have just done what most parents do when their children see something bad. Hopefully if I ignore it, maybe they won't see it, right? But Imam Shafi is like, no, we're going to address this head on. People need to be empowered, they need to help understand that evil exists, you need to know how to deal with it. So Imam Shafi he tells them that look, just as you have safeguarded your tongues from it, you need to safeguard your ears from it as well. And it's a two-way street. Now why is Imam Shafi rahimahullah so, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? So focused, uh, if you want to use that word, on making sure that the ears are protected. Imam Shafi rahimahullah, when you look at his usul al-fiqh, he was very big on inner talk, on the thoughts that we feel. He constantly used to say, beware of the thoughts that you are thinking, for they will become your actions. So now when you get exposed to bad talk, this will affect the thoughts that you think. So in order to protect the thoughts that you're thinking, you have to protect what is going inside your ear. That is why he's telling his students this. Number two, is to teach his students particularly the sanctity of scholars. That the scholars are one, that backbiting in general is haram, slander in general is haram. But it becomes even more haram when you do about something sacred or something that has sanctity to it. Ibn Sakir rahimahullah, he talks about, you know, how the flesh of the scholars is poisonous. Yarhamukallah. Meaning that when you backbite a scholar, it's not like backbiting an average individual. You're spreading poison in the ummah when you backbite the scholar. So he wanted to protect his children, uh, sorry, his students from that. And then he concludes with something very powerful. He says, when you reject the speech of a fool, you are blessed in rejecting it as much as the fool is cursed for uttering it. And for me, this is very, very powerful. That, you know, a lot of the times we won't think that in protecting our ears, there will be barakah in our lives. That's going to bring some sort of barakah in it. But we need to understand that just as the individual that speaks evil is cursed, the individual that protects himself from evil is going to be blessed. And this is a perspective that often gets lost. It often gets lost. <sighs> Imam Shafi'i Allah's understanding of freedom. He was an advocate of freedom, but not in the perspective that you know, we talk about today. That we're talking about, you know, be free of all accountability and all responsibility, and you know, just do whatever, the, whatever you want. <laughs> you know, that's the only way I can explain it. This is, okay, I'm sorry to go off on a, on a rant, but I need to, to talk about this as well. So last night, uh, the Daily Show with, with Trevor Noah. Again, uh, later, a lot of great content um, about the Muslim community. Phenomenal content, you know. Muslims are a part of the community, they're contributing, they're going through oppression right now. This ban makes no sense. It only makes terrorism much, much worse, uh, and things like that. But at the end of the show, he's interviewing a musician that is transgendered and has written a book called Trani. I, I don't remember the, the individual's name. Now, according to Trevor Noah, this was the most popular guest that has ever come on to his show. That even before the show is starting, his own colleagues are saying, hey, can I help you interview this guest because I want to meet this guest and things like that. And I was thinking to myself, this is when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talks about 
haq being mixed with batil, right? And I think this is going to go back to my discussion that I was having on the very first week, that in order for Muslims to be accepted in the West, will it mean that we have to compromise on the principles that we stand for? Is that what it is eventually going to come down to? Like this is a discussion that we need to have internally and actively think about. Because if we keep going down this road of wanting to be accepted at any cost, we will eventually no longer exist and it'll be irrelevant. Right? Understand that. So there has to be a stance that we take on moral and ethical grounds because obviously you can't do that on religion anymore because religion is taboo. So we need to be able to defend our own religion internally as a Muslim community through our texts, but externally through our explanation of logic and understanding of morality and ethics. Now with that having been said, I think this is going to be a, a, a huge challenge. Like coming forward, things are only going to get worse. That there's going to be a lot of pressure on the Muslim community from two fronts. Number one is the whole counter-terrorism, counter-radicalization front, which is coming from the right wing. And then from the left wing, social cohesion. You know, is the Muslim community progressive enough to socially adapt to the times that they live in? And this is where, you know, not, the, you have to understand where integration without assimilation is imperative. We need to be integrated into our community, but we can't assimilate to complete non-Muslim values. We will lose ourselves at that time. That's something I, I just wanted to, to throw in there. How do you do that? Inshallah, we'll have a series of 52 halakas uh, at some point, inshallah. <laughs> I, I wish it was as simple as that. I, I wish it was as simple as that. So now going back to Imam Shafi understanding of freedom. A man comes to Imam Shafi and he says, give me good advice. Don't give me bad advice, give me good advice. A Shafi replied to him, Allah has created you free, so be free like he created you. And the man walked away confused. <laughs> so, what did Imam Shafi mean by this? Obviously, his students are very inquisitive. They're like, Shaykh, what did you mean by that? And he explains it in like multiple phases. Number one, he says, freedom is generosity and taqwa. Whoever possesses both will be free. Freedom is generosity and taqwa. Whoever possesses both will be free. Why did he say that? Well, from a Quranic perspective, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talks about chess being congested when people are stingy. And when people are no longer attached to material gains, they will be free at that time. They are free from this dunya. As well as people understanding that the boundaries that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has set for us in halal and haram is not to punish us. But rather it is to make sure that societies can sustain and have law in them. And they're free to the degree that we need to be free, but they're limiting to the degree that we need to be limited to as well. Right? That is what the law of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is. And taqwa is the self-governing law. That sometimes you may not know the literal law of sharia, but you know deep down inside, you wouldn't want Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala seeing you doing this. You wouldn't want Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala saying that my slave did this on the day of judgment. Right? That is the self-governing law of taqwa. Then he goes on to explain Likewise, he said, chivalry is a badge of the free. Meaning that, you know, in the Arabic language, maru'a, of having, you know, good character, having those characters, characteristics of what we would call traditionally manliness. Courage, bravery, ghira over your women folk. 
these are the acts of chivalry. Imam Shafi'i is saying that chivalry is the badge of the free, is the badge of the free. And I'll share one last thing with you, and then we'll, we can just discuss this briefly, inshallah. So Imam Shafi'i, another problem that he had in his life was when he eventually moved to Egypt. So Imam Shafi'i, he died in Egypt. When he moved to Egypt, he met some overzealous followers of Imam Malik. Overzealous. So anytime Imam Shafi'i would you know, disagree with Malik, these people wouldn't have it. Now why was this such a big issue for them? This was a big issue for them because when a Shafi'i came, comes to Egypt, they're like, we have our champion. Sorry, can I get a tissue if you don't mind, please? It might be in the office or if there's one over there. Jazakallah khair. Jazakallah khair, thank you very much. So they're thinking, you know, the champion of the Maliki Madhab is going to be coming to Egypt and we're about to take over, right? That's what they're thinking. Imam Shafi'i, if you follow his statements, he clearly was not a blind follower. He followed the truth. That, was, that is what his ambition was, always following the truth. So now when a Shafi'i comes and he's, you know, just in polite words, refuting Imam Malik, these people aren't having it. So they started spreading rumors about Imam Shafi'i that he was Mu'tazili, that this was a deviant sect of that time. When we study Imam Ahmad's life, you'll have a greater context of it because the Khilafah had established this as an official theology of their time. So they started accusing Imam Shafi'i of this. Now why did they do this? Because when Imam Shafi'i was studying with Imam Malik in Medina, there was a very young man that would eventually become a great Mu'tazili scholar. But at that time, this man was too young to have developed his Mu'tazila theology. Uh, we'll, we'll come to his name later on, inshallah. We'll come to his name later on, inshallah, if I, if I find it. So, Imam Shafi'i, rahimullah, he had spent time with this individual. He saw some strange things in him, but he's like, look, I can take the good and I can leave the bad. And this is an approach that Imam Shafi'i, rahimullah, had. That with every major movement, Imam Shafi'i, rahimullah, spent time with them. And I want to read with you what Imam Shafi'i says. He says, I spent 10 years with the Sufi mystics and I learned two things from them. Time is a sword and the best safeguard from sin is to be unable to commit it. Time is a sword and the best safeguard from sin is to be unable to commit it. So the time of a sword is very straightforward. That time is very valuable and make the most of your time. And I think, you know, if you look at Imam Shafi's life, even though he only lived 54 years, the two books that he wrote are like enormous works. They're, they're you know, monumental works in you know, Islamic jurisprudence. That our, we're so dependent on the works that he did in these 50 or 4 years of life that he lived. So he definitely took time, or took advantage of this time. But the best safeguard from sin is to be unable to commit it. What does that mean exactly? Well, this ties into the concept of, of, of taqwa again. That you need to have such a deep level of love for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that you don't want to do something to disobey Him. You need to have such a deep understanding of what is, you know, hateful by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and stay away from it. And then you need to have a third thing, seeing things for what they actually are. And this is like, you know, a really deep understanding that Imam Shafi'i developed, that when you look at certain sins, 
They seem so amazing. Like, you will definitely enjoy committing this sin. What we're being deluded by is the pleasure we might get from that sin. What we're being deluded by is some good we think we'll be achieving from that sin. But Imam al-Shafi is reminding us that with sin, there's always more than meets the eye. So train your nafs to see the sin for what it is. And that is why the best safeguard from sin is not being able to commit it. Imagine if you saw sin as something repugnant, as something as hated, something as distasteful. Would you ever do it? You wouldn't. So that is what Imam al-Shafi is saying, that develop that. And this is what he learned from the Sufis, that the Sufis had this form of asceticism, that they were able to see their desires for what they were. That if they weren't in check, they would lead you to sin. Now we come to another section about Imam al-Shafi that we didn't talk about in other people. The sense of humor that Imam al-Shafi had. And Imam al-Shafi, he was clearly a people's people. That you know, we talk about the people's champ. Imam al-Shafi was the people's champ. That he would go out with the sake of benefiting and engaging with people. That was like his life. He had dedicated his life to that. So at time to times, Imam al-Shafi is getting invited to people's houses. He's going out to dinner with people. And he's noticing that his students, they're like, I don't know if I told you guys the story of the faculty of Hadith in Medina. I think I might have, I'm sure I did, because I remember sitting at this table telling you guys that story. Faculty of Hadith in Medina, no personality. Everyone's super serious, no one smiles. It's as if they're upset all the time. Imam Shafi is seeing his students like that. He tells them, it is foolish to be serious and grave on an outing. Meaning that if you're out with the guys, you don't have to be serious. Learn to have a good time. Learn to tell a joke, learn to tell stories, learn to engage with people. So his students narrate that when we were with Imam al-Shafi on one night, he told us the following. He says, in my trip to Medina, I saw four strange things I have never seen anywhere else. And listen to these things. Number one, I saw a 21-year-old grandmother. I saw a man fall into bankruptcy over a handful of grain. I didn't understand this part of the story, but I'm sharing it with you anyways. The judge declared him insolvent, so I'm not sure what that means. I saw a very old man who dyed his hair. He used to go walking to the homes of the singing girls to give them singing lessons. Then when the time for Salah came, I saw him praying on a chair. I saw a left-handed man who could write with his left hand faster than anyone could with their right. So Imam al-Shafi, he's just engaging people, telling them people stories of the amazing things that he saw in Medina. Like some of these things are like, what's the big deal if you can write faster with your left hand? Understanding this in context, in Islamic history, writing with your left hand, doing anything with your left hand, was a huge taboo, right? The Prophet hadith that, you know, eat and drink with your right hand, for indeed, shaitan eats and drinks with his left hand. They took this hadith very literally, that, you know, if you were born left-handed, you're born cursed. That's how they understood it. Obviously, that changed over time. So Imam al-Shafi is saying that this man, he was left-handed, he couldn't write with his right hand, but he was able to write with his left hand faster than people were with the right. And as particularly with the, the story of the old man, I found that really funny. That, you know, as a man gets older, he still has that ambition of being around younger women. And even though he had this ambition, he's dyeing his hair so that he could deceive the age. But when it comes time for Salah, he's still praying sitting down. So I found that uh, interesting as well. On another occasion, his students say, uh, that we heard from him, there was a man in Medina who sent his dim-witted servant boy to the market 
telling him, buy me a rope that is 30 cubits long. <laughs> he told, so the servant boy is not very smart. He tells him, buy me a rope that is 30 cubits long. The boy asked him, it is, <laughs> it is 30 cubits long, but how wide is it? <laughs> the man said, as wide as the trouble that you are giving me. As wide as the trouble you are giving me. So, that was like Imam Shafi's attempt at a, at a joke, which is probably like a true story. So obviously you tell you know, jokes as long as within the parameters of truth. As long as within the parameters of truth. Um, so we spoke about Imam Shafi, uh, his problem in Najran already. So that was like the first fitna that he went through. He's in Najran, he's summoned by the Khalifa. Again, he's being accused of something. But what he's being accused of again is being overthrown of the Caliphate. But on top of that, the reason why that was happening is because he's also being accused of being Shia. Now, that was the um, thing that he was accused of. Likewise, he's accused of being Mu'tazili. Hopefully, I can find that story for you uh, as well. Um, it's probably in this book. But I'll leave it for another time. Just, I'll get you the, the Sheikh's name after. I just want to conclude with this as the time is coming to an end. I'll leave you with uh, the praise for, of his peers and how Imam al-Shafi rahimullah ended up passing away. How Imam al-Shafi rahimullah ended up passing away. So, Ahmad was once in a Shafi's company walking along aside him while Imam al-Shafi rahimullah is riding his mule. And Yahya ibn Ma'in, another you know, monumental scholar of hadith, came along and he said, are you content walking next to the mule? Ahmad said, if you were to walk on the other side, that would be better for you. And then he later added, no, forget that. But even if you were to walk behind the mule, it would still be better for you to learn the law. So meaning that, understand what's happening over here. The scholars of hadith, they had this uh, pride, particularly in Hijaz, that we are like the cream of the crop, that we are the best thing to ever come since sliced bread. This is the mentality that they came with. So certain of them developed this thing of, you know, we're not going to humble ourselves or humiliate ourselves in a certain way, even if it means for the sake of benefit. And this is what Imam Ahmad is trying to convey to Yahya ibn Ma'in that look, yes, traditionally speaking, it might not be appropriate for Imam al-Shafi to be riding on the mule and me walking with him to learn from him, but you have to understand what you're missing out on if you don't uh, take advantage of this, if you don't take advantage of this. Sufyan ibn Uyayna, a name we've mentioned many times. He says that every time I learn something new, whether it is a hadith or interpretation of a verse or a legal verdict, I would always consult Imam al-Shafi about it. I would always consult Imam al-Shafi about it. Now, how did Imam al-Shafi rahimahullah pass away? Two incidents that people say are correlated. So when Imam al-Shafi uh, was in, Mac in, uh, in Egypt in his final stage of, of life, as I mentioned, there was a fitna with the, the Maliki uh, group over there. And there was one particular student that, you know, just caused uh, a lot of fitna for him. And one day he's like, you know what? I'm going to debate Imam al-Shafi and I'm going to beat him. He debates Imam al-Shafi, he gets humiliated and disgraced. What does he decide to do? Grabs a bunch of thugs and gets Imam al-Shafi rahimullah beat up. So now, at this time, this is where the story takes a bit of a shift. But Imam al-Shafi rahimahullah, he already had uh, an intestinal injury at that time. From old age, we don't know what it was. In fact, it could have been intestinal cancer. We don't know at that time. But because of that injury, along with this uh, you know, beat up or whatever you want to call it, 
A couple of days later after that, Imam al-Shafi rahimahullah, he passed away from that injury, from the, that injury in the intestine. Now, Shaykh Muhammad Abu Zahra, when he talks about this, he says one of the aspects of shahada that is forgotten is a person that dies of stomach or intestinal injuries or stomach or intestinal like cancer or any of these things. Any form of pain that you die from in your stomach, this is a form of shahada. And you'll find this as a recurring theme in the, in the lives of the Imams that they all died these righteous deaths. So Imam al-Shafi when he passed away, he, he passed away in this intestinal injury or, or cancer or, or wound or whatever it was. And this was a, a form of shahada for him. So may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala have mercy upon him, forgive him for his sins, and uh, allow his legacy to remain with us. Ameen. Wallahu ta'ala alam wa sallallahu wa sallam wa baraka ala nabiyyana Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. I tried to make this halaqa as different as possible from last week's halaqa. Um, last week's halaqa was actually very, very heavy on me. Uh, even after the, the halaqa, I, I have a kung fu class that, that I take. And in that class, like, I, I, I beat the bag up like crazy. Like literally, I, I've never felt the release uh, of so much tension. So I came in with the mentality of, you know what? Today's halaqa has to be the exact opposite. A lot of lessons, but keep it as lighthearted as possible. In doing that, we did skip over some of the details from his life, but all the messages I wanted to get across, again, I've shared with you. And again, as I've been telling you about the other Imams as well, continue to study their lives on your own, right? The books are here, the, like, uh, the company of the Imams by Sheikh Salman Al-Awda, the four Imams by Sheikh Muhammad Al-Zahra, multiple lectures online on the biographies of the Imams, multiple books out there as well. In fact, if you're extremely lazy, all you need to do is go to Wikipedia. Wikipedia actually has good pages about the Imams as well. Take them with a grain of salt because they um, reject a lot of the narrations that are brought forth because it doesn't meet their historical standards. So you won't hear about their spirituality, you won't hear about their ibadat. But in terms of factual information, then Wikipedia does do a, a pretty good job of reporting that. And I'll open up the floor for questions and answers, inshallah, if you guys have any questions. Go ahead, Pasan. Um, According to my understanding, uh, all four of the prison at some point in their life. Not prison, but they were persecuted. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Imam Shafi never went to prison? He never went to prison. At least from what I read, he did not go to prison. So he had like attempts of persecution and trials that he went through that we mentioned. The incident of the Jada being accused of being Shia. The, the Maliki, uh, Maliki incident in Mecca being beat up. And then also in terms of being accused of Mu'tazili because he was studied with a, a young Mu'tazili sheikh in Medina. Those are the, the incidents that I know of. Yeah. <coughs> Excellent. So Imam al-Shafi was on the pursuit of knowledge. And as you'll see, like one thing I, I forgot to mention by the way, narrations mention that the day that Imam al-Shafi was born was the same day that Imam Abu Hanifa passed away. And again, this is like another trend that when we're talking about Imam Malik, we're saying when Imam Malik was born, Anas ibn Malik, the Sahabi, you know, he had passed away around that time. So leading to this point over here, Imam al-Shafi, he had heard about these legendary stories. So he heard about Imam Abu Hanifa and his students, and that sort of led him, you know, to study with Muhammad ibn Hassan. And he never got a chance to meet Abu Yusuf. Abu Yusuf had passed away. But in Egypt, he learns about Al-Layth ibn Sa'd. And Nathan Musad, as we mentioned, was this other great imam who had a madhab of his own that just didn't last till our day and age. So he wanted to go and benefit from that madhab. And it again ended up being very monumental because interacting with the students of Laith ibn Sa'd, it helped him re-refine the knowledge that he already had. And that is why in Egypt, he got an opportunity to revise his books. We mentioned that um, 
Rabia bin Suleiman, he revised the Risala with Imam al-Shafi over 30 times, right, in, in that. So that's why he ended up moving to Egypt. Wallahu ta'ala alam. Yeah, go ahead. Yes. Imam al-Shafi? What's your favorite hockey team? Do you like any sports at all? Okay, who's your favorite soccer team? Algeria. Algeria. <laughs> okay, so imagine, does Canada have a soccer team? I think they do. So imagine you like Team Algeria, I like Team Canada. And I was like, Team Canada is better than Team Algeria. And you're like, no, Team Algeria is better than Team Canada. Imagine Team Algeria and Team Canada finally play one another, and Team Algeria destroys Team Canada. At that point, I'm humiliated and disgraced. And when you're immature and you've not, like, you don't have good reasoning, you're like, I'm bigger and stronger, let me use my physical strength against you, and I'll prove that I'm a better man. And that's what happened with Imam al-Shafi and the students that attributed themselves to Imam Malik. That Imam al-Shafi did such a good job refuting some of the mistakes of Imam Malik that his students didn't like it. And the only way they could respond is through physical violence. Does that make sense? Go ahead. Right. Right. So uh, we discussed this in the very first halakha. Um, just to, to summarize it, politics did play a part in it, but there's also a huge role of the effort that the Imams put in themselves in teaching their students and making sure that they understood the importance of giving da'wah and, and teaching everything that they learned. And then the third aspect that often gets neglected is the level of sincerity that these Imams had. Right? They had an immense amount of sincerity that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala honored their sincerity through their madhahib being spread. Right? And that's something that we see in these four Imams. Wallahu ta'ala But I think with Imam al-Shafi, something that stuck out by himself, we discussed this yesterday, is that he was the only Imam that authored books. Right? The other Imams had books of hadith, but they didn't have actual books that they wrote. Imam al-Shafi wrote al-Risala and he wrote al-Um. Al-Risala in usul fiqh, al-Um in fiqh. So his madhab was documented from his time. And it was so logically sound, filled with evidences. It was cohesive, encompassing, that it just made sense to people. And that's why people naturally adopted it. And along with his students, his students did a phenomenal job of spreading his madhab as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No yeah, of course. So these Imams are the founders of their madhahib. And what that means is they established a set of principles that we would understand the Quran and Sunnah by. And then as scholars came later on, they interpreted these uh, principles and implemented them. And that is how in each madhab you will have multiple opinions. And each madhab has a gradual progress of progression. So when you're starting off a madhab, you'll study this book. As you get more advanced, you study that book. As you get more advanced, you study that book. So now, to summarize our discussion, if you go back to the first Thursday night halakha we had, that was online, we talk about the role that each individual layman is responsible for having with fiqh. 
And we, he said that each individual is responsible of knowing the arkan of Islam and the arkan of Iman. So the five pillars, as well as the six articles of faith, you have to know that individually. No one can you know, do that on your behalf. And then you have another aspect to your life, which is your profession. So whatever your profession is, you need to know the detailed fiqh of that, and no one can you know, do that for you. But for everything else, you should have a mufti. So something new arises in your life, you don't go online to a fatwa website and say, hey, what should I do in this situation? But rather you go and ask your mufti, and your mufti will give you fatwa at that time. And this is our relationship with fiqh. If an individual decides to become a student of knowledge, then at that time he gets a full-time teacher. That full-time teacher will guide him through one of the madhahib, teaching him principles, teaching him the gradual progression of books, and that's what should take place. Wallahu alam. Haydar? Sorry, I'm about to start or something, but you said uh, Imam Shafi'i learned two lessons from the Sufis. Yes. Uh, time, is, time is a sword, and the safeguard of sin is to, to be unable to commit it. Yes. Uh, when or and how did you learn this? When or how? So he spent time with the Sufis in Medina. Uh, so I'm assuming this is during his time with Imam Malik. Rahimahullah. As for how did he learn that, I don't know what that means. What do you mean by how did he learn it? Like, how was he taught that? How was he taught that? Did he observe the Imams by... No, he actually studied with them and learned with them. So like they were teaching the spiritual sciences and this is what Imam Shafi'i learned with them. Is Sufism accepted by Islam? Anything that ends with ISM, I will always ask you to explain to me what you mean by that and then I can explain to you if it's compatible with Islam. So if we're talking about spirituality, is spirituality a part of Islam? It is a very big part of Islam. If you're asking me, is dancing around on one leg, shouting, Ya Allah, part of Islam? I'll say, no, that's not a part of Islam. So it purely depends on what aspect of it you're referring to. Wallahu Because they are, uh, men, they are men, things uh, they just circle and they dance. Uh, yeah. A lot of things, they are, they are, they Those things that you're referring to are not a part of Islam. Right. <laughs> May Allah guide us. May Allah guide us. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> After he was born, he was two years old at that time. He was two years old at that time. Yeah. We learned that, like, the they were. They learn from one and from another one. So you have teachers and, and, and students. Um, one of the things that we notice in the world is that it's known as the task of the middle. Yes. And uh, we see it in sometimes in the Fatawi. I mean, I, I, I don't want to discuss that in detail because I don't think that's an issue in the community. So what the brother is talking about is when people have partisanship towards their madhab, saying that my madhab is superior to yours and you're wrong for following your madhab and we should only follow this madhab. This sort of mentality is clearly wrong and it's something that even the imams themselves discouraged. As we're studying your lives, you, you'll see this time again. But any form of partisanship in Islam is not allowed. So that's something that you should stay away from. You know, I mentioned, I think, in the very first halakha over here, that when you look at the adverse effects of partisanship based on madhabs, we saw in Mecca in the uh, like 16, 17, 1800s that there's four salahs going on at, at one given time. That the Malikis have their own salah, the Shafis have their own salah, the Hanbalis have their own salah, uh, you know, and the Hanafis have their own salah. This is not proper. As I mentioned, we're one ummah, we're one congregation. We should be praying behind one another even though we differ. 
But when people have this blind partisanship and they have this animosity and hatred on things that it's not legislated to have animosity and hatred on, this is what ends up happening. Allahu ta'ala. Khair, I think we'll conclude with that. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika shadun la ilaha illa ant. Astaghfiruka wa tubu ilayk. Next week is the last set of halakas.